Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And today it's my absolute delight that joining me, Mike Side, I not only have the wonderful Sasha Dench, who Planet Pod listeners know well and love, uh, but I also have our fabulous producer, Jim. Jim, hello. Hello, Amanda. Thank you. And, and thanks for the fabulous bit. Uh, it was great to come out blinking into the sunlight. I actually, I know what the outside world's now like, so it's good. But um, haven't we had some fantastic discussions over the last well, couple of months, three, three or four months, really? talked about national parks, we've talked about politics, haven't we? We've talked about uh, the climate change and ecological emergency bill, wildlife-friendly gardening, we've talked about farming practices, everything. Yeah. And, uh, I think all around putting a value on the natural world, you know, how important that the natural world is in our lives, particularly at this point in time, uh, and what we can each do to make a difference. And I guess, Sasha, particularly, making a huge difference and, and talking to people who are making a difference, that's really exciting, isn't it? It is. It is. And we have, you're right, had some fantastic conversations and lockdown and COVID have not stopped us talking to some amazing people who are environmental ecological heroes and none more so than Sasha, human swan, who has been with us before to talk about um, her fabulous flight with the Buick Swans, but now is engaged on an even more exciting and closer to home expedition. Sasha, hello. Thank you so much for joining us and tell everybody what you're doing up on your paramotor. I am trying to fly around the country, a 3,000 mile journey, and trying to decarbonize in this year of COP26. So my expedition model for the Swan flight was in a petrol powered paramotor with four diesel vehicles as the support crew. And on that whole expedition, the, the thing that you couldn't not see was that climate change was an exacerbating factor in nearly all the threats to birds. So I had to decarbonize. And so, yeah, this is a way that I thought I could put a bit of skin in the game and try it myself. Can you can you fly around the country powered by electricity and not petrol? Tell us just technically, how does that work? Have you got a solar panel on the on the, on the sale? <laughs> no, I, I haven't. Unfortunately, we're not that advanced yet, but I'm hoping. So there, there's been many challenges. It's basically a prototype machine. There's very few people. There's no other electric paramotor in the UK. And the reason being that it's has so an, with an 18 kilogram battery attached to about a 17 kilo paramotor i've got a maximum flight time of 35 minutes as opposed to a three three and a half hour with a petrol tank and a machine that overall weighs about half as much so um it's at the moment it's kind of at, at the early stages but yeah i'm yeah that's that's how it works so i'm doing each flight of about 35 minutes and with a ground crew also in electric vehicles I've got spare batteries. So there's a, a support vehicle that follows and does a rapid recharge so that I can take off and land again. Sasha, it must be really quiet compared with your previous flights where you've had a, a petrol motor. Uh, it must be lovely to be up there in the, in the silence, relative silence. Yeah, relative silence. So with a, with a paramotor, half, about half of the noise is the propeller spinning. So I still have the noise of the propeller spinning. It is a higher pitch noise, though. So for anyone on the ground, they uh, it's much less noticeable. And people are commenting all the time. When I've gone to a beach, some people say, oh, you've seen someone flying that before, but they normally make a noise. Um, so, you know, so for me personally, I hear a little bit less, but I've also got ear defenders on when you're flying. So generally you don't hear it. What I really notice is that you don't feel the vibration. So usually there's a, a vibration in the whole system. You just I don't have that anymore. 
um, at all. But yeah, it is, um, I have to say, I do really like it. I like not having to handle the petrol. I like not having the fumes. I like not having the fumes in the van. And yeah, the instancy of the kind of power on and off, that's also a joy. So I absolutely love the form of flight. It's just got a bit of a way to go to be the best thing, I suppose, for, for expeditions and certainly for flying in some challenging conditions up in the Lake District in the mountains, knowing that you've only got 35 minutes battery time. But <laughs> <laughs> bit sort of nail biting, I guess. But I mean, are, yeah. are, you, opt- are you optimistic about the future of electric flight? Because it's something that you know a lot of people are, are heralding as a, as a real possibility. But, you know, you're, we're talking about relatively light craft in your case, uh, compared with sort of commercial aircraft i mean what do you what, what's your what's your understanding of where that's going ah uh, so i am yet to go and speak to people who've got the kind of expertise in electric flight as soon as you put wheels onto a craft and you're less limited I, i'm limited in terms of battery size by how much i can carry on my two feet and run along the ground with at speed in order to take off so any aircraft that's got wheels has got different limitations to it so i'd say let me tell you after i finish this expedition <laughs> once I've had full chats with them. But I think what I am really hoping is that, you know, through all these challenges, I've already improved the aircraft significantly just by testing it in challenging conditions. Quite a few small things, but small things that are absolutely critical. And lots of people are messaging with ideas and options. And I've had a couple say, if we build you a similar um, but hydrogen powered, would you attempt this again and try and do it faster? Um, so if it's inspiring, if my struggles are inspiring people to come forward, some geniuses to come forward and uh, and and offer new solutions, then um, then uh, yes, uh, that that alone makes me optimistic. And, that, yeah. and that's great, isn't it? Because I mean, that's essentially what you're trying to do, isn't it? Is you're trying to find inspirational, optimistic, energetic stories as you go and talk to people, and that's yes. so. It must be great to to get that sort of feedback. Yes, absolutely. I mean, even the R- the RAF. So I stopped and landed at RAF Valley a couple of weeks back, where I know the RAF have made some. Uh, you know, they they would have been very supportive and would really like to be able to to shift to decarbonize their their flight. And so, if they're at a they're at a level and they're happy to speak out about this, that also um, that also makes me optimistic. So, uh, yeah. And uh, I I think for me personally. Um, it's been a journey that is has been important. I think I've mentioned in the previous podcast the losing our house in the Australian bushfires last year. I think I personally need to go on a journey where I can see are there really the solutions out there? Are there solutions across lots of different industries? And are they in the hands of people who know how to make them grow? Or can I help to make those solutions grow? That is what's going to keep me away from the kind of eco-anxiety arena into the into the optimism. And I'm firmly in the optimism at the moment. Sasha, you were planning to do something different, weren't you? After your amazing flight with the Swans, you were planning yeah. to do a flight with the Ospreys, weren't you? And you were all set to do that and had you know a campaign up and running and ready to go. And then obviously COVID hit. So, so this has been a change of tack. Um, yeah. And I think, you, you know, from what you've just been saying, obviously it isn't just about wanting to be back up in the air because obviously that's where you like to be. It is actually about wanting to draw attention to climate change. So for those people who may not know enough about the Fabulous Expedition, where did you start and what's the route? And what is the kind of, you know, you've talked about the people you're influencing on the ground, but what's the kind of journey about in terms of, of where you're planning to get to at the end of it? So I started from, well, the team gathered on Loch Lomond, just on the outside of outskirts of Glasgow, 
Um, we had our launch in Glasgow at the site of COP26 because this is what it's about. It was intended to be a, a journey, a personal journey of trying to decarbonize, but also a journey that people could follow, which is around the country gauging where is climate change affecting us here in the UK? What's the general mood from the public and others, but also talking to people who have climate solutions, but in a way that is very accessible and told partly through an adventure. So there's nothing like kind of landing in a place and being able to have an impromptu call or conversation with a farmer to give you a really good idea of uh, of where they're at, what they're thinking. But it's also been a good way of, yeah, stopping and landing and, and speaking to people who we already know have got ideas. So I think we had 260 different stories nominated from different people. Oh, I suppose people who have been inspired by somebody have suggested them. And so, yeah, we're trying to meet as many of them as possible, obviously only a small portion of them. But that's really what this is about, showing some of the realities of climate change in this country, but definitely highlighting and promoting people who've got solutions, because there are definitely some out there who've got great ideas, but they are not the right people to turn that idea into um, something that can scale. So wherever possible, we're trying to join those dots. So you've got this route around the UK, 3,000 miles or something. And every time you land, you're meeting somebody who's, who's already on the right page. They're already thinking about climate change. Are you meeting anyone who's resistant? I mean, are you meeting people who are skeptical or, or, or unenthusiastic? Because yeah. what I sometimes worry about is, you know, we have conversations, Jim and I have conversations, we have fabulous guests on the pod, but I worry that we're in that classic echo chamber and we're only ever talking to people who are already understand the, the crisis that we face and the existential crisis that faces humanity. And that sometimes we're not getting to the people who, who are skeptical, who are resistant, who are critical. We've definitely had some planned stops, but because the planned stops or people we speak to might be two different ones on any on any particular day, but I have to land maybe six times in a day, and that's pretty much always on a on a farmer's field, on a football pitch, or somewhere else. So that's where I can have the impromptu conversations. I've also made a point of going down to Blackpool Beach and vox popping, asking random people on the on the waterfront what they think. I mean, most people were holiday makers, so I actually spoke to people from all around the country. What they think about climate change, uh, what they think about the kind of prospect of green jobs, do they feel like, is that something good or not? So yes, I'm making a point of meeting people who aren't all on the same page as me uh, in terms of gathering their views and, um, and speaking to them. But yeah, the planned stops are all with people that have got great ideas. And I tell you what I like about them as convincing voices. So many of them are not environmentalists or they've never worked. They're not paid by an environmental charity because I have found that there's a suite of people who are called themselves sort of cynical about climate change. But what I realize is they're not actually cynical about the facts. They're not, they don't have any additional information about the facts. What they dislike is the message of fear, but they can be quite pragmatic. So I think talking to people who've got ideas and solutions, that I think can appeal to almost anybody. It's like taking people on a journey into, okay, here's a problem, how are we solving it? That's, um, that's a story that the, the cynics, that those who dislike the fear messaging around climate change can get on board with and can get excited about. And where we're pitching ideas that are also investment opportunities and others, I think that can also engage, engage those people that might be considered 
cynics to the to the fear message. I mean, the fear should definitely be there in my in my view because you know we're reaching tipping points faster than we said. But if I think that is a way to reach to reach a whole suite of people. So give us a, a for instance. I mean, what kind of people are you meeting? What kind of solutions are people coming up with that that could be scalable that do present you know new business or new commercial opportunities? So there's one that I have recently left was a, a seaweed farm. So a family, I started by a father who ha, was in um, mussel farming and a couple of his colleagues had an idea. And at the moment, it's now it's kind of grown to be the immediate family and now the extended family and then a community of about 50 others. I don't know. Have you spoken to them before? Um, We've spoken to people who do seaweed products, but not farmers yeah. themselves. Ah, so, so, so uh, yes, it was a. A family who took, unfortunately, it took them three years to get permission to put up a trial site, which was just a 100 meter long kelp farm, but it's farming kelp and oysters and mussels and uh, scallops together. So again, similar to the permaculture idea, the idea of farming different things that all interact in an ecosystem together. And yeah, so they, they took us out to have a look at that. A, I just think the growth of all different sorts of kelp was incredibly healthy and amazing looking. You can really see once it's growing out there that it, uh, A, it's obviously a, f- a great filter for runoff and pollution from land. It also creates an impressive barrier for you know storms and things from the sea, which is great if it's extended. Obviously, a 100 meter long stretch is fairly small. Um, but then they showed us, yeah, different products, I guess, they, uh, that are similar. So a plastic, um, a sort of a, a rigid plastic made completely from seaweed, seaweed coatings on the inside of cardboard food containers, um, which are completely and very rapidly biodegradable, which is excellent. We also had a hot tub experience with kelp added, and it was a spectacularly joyful experience. Um, but yeah, <laughs> nothing, nothing at all. You can see, you can see how obviously the, the seafood is, has a value. There's um, predictions for what the sea that what the kelp market is going to be worth in future is in the billions per year mm. um and they've got great ideas but they're really struggling with getting permissions to extend it beyond the um, 100 meter stretch and i think yeah their, their big thing was that actually the powers that be need to be more supportive of innovators and give permissions way more quickly because mm. it's cost the whole family their savings and that's in the waiting a large part of it is having to wait three That's years. Shocking. And, and that must be so frustrating if you've got good ideas uh, and you know things things work and you can prove things work, but they're not to be able to get the you know, permission, planning permission or, or development permission and, and maybe funding. Uh, I mean, I was fascinated what you were saying about joining dots as well, Sasha. You know, I mean, th- again, that the fact that so many people have ideas, but so few people perhaps know how to make those turn those ideas into reality and who to turn to, where they, where they can get advice. I mean, what do you see? Are you seeing that there is a real lack of, uh, of a sort of joined up thinking in terms of turning ideas into reality or, or are more and more people actually banding together and clubbing together and sharing those ideas? I feel as though more and more people are stepping up and offering to help those innovators, but it's coming from community as opposed to being come as opposed to coming from government individuals, I suppose, who are employed because they are good at maintaining our process as opposed to thinking outside the box. Um, would that be right in thinking that? So with the, sea, with the kelp farm, for example, they have about uh, 50 volunteers and supporters who put in money. They've got a, um, a local boat designer who's actually designed and built them a boat because he believes so much in the project that he thinks in the future they'll be able to pay for it. So he's made it and he's given it to them essentially to use for now, but because he can see that there's, there's real potential there. So I, what I'm seeing in that case is actually that passionate people 
with big ideas are starting to attract people. Enough people see that this is where this is where we are all going and, and are prepared to support it. But maybe that's not coming fast enough from from government. Um, but that is that is just one example. Is the problem in that case the local authority, Sasha? Was that like the local authority, like the local council or the or the harbour master, or because you know what you're saying chimes with so much of what we've said in the last few months on the pod is that there are entrepreneurs out there with ideas, there are investors out there with money to invest in the ideas, there are startup organisations like you know the team at Imperial where they just they accelerate these projects to, to to scalable and to business. So the problem isn't anywhere there. The problem is is government, isn't it? The government is the problem is bureaucracy, local and national. Yes, and in their case, they had. There was no existing process because there aren't any other kelp farms. So they had to work through people trying to find what the process was. I think they had a combination of National Trust having some ownership over that piece of coast, a local authority, but also the Crown Estate also had some, some ownership of it. I don't understand the details of it, but those combined and it was a group of innovators who don't usually work in that space and were all completely self-funding trying to, to find their way through it. So, yes, it would be great if there was a simplification of process, government process for all these innovators. This episode of Planet Pod is supported by leading international law firm Evershed Sutherland. I mean, would you say that's a key message for COP? Uh, for COP26 to, to as you say, you know, if we're going to make this a reality and if we're really going to engage people at, at all levels yeah. of, our, of our communities and, and society, and particularly those people at grassroots who can, can make a difference, and we know they can make a difference through relatively straightforward things, uh, surely mm. it's got to be easier and we've got to find a route through all this bureaucracy and red tape to, to actually make these things happen without riding roughshod over planning, you know, without sort of suggesting that anything goes. Yeah. If you can do that with planning for housing, then you should be able to do it with innovators wanting to, to test and try the new ideas. There must be a way of facilitating that. I mean, this group, for example, are having to having to identify any negative, any negative impacts there might be. And you go out there and visit it and you can see there's very, very unlikely to be any negative impacts. But they, have, they are being expected to figure out for themselves what those in, negative impacts might be to then monitor them. And there's obviously a massive cost to that as well. So I just think overall, the the process is, is not being made easy enough. And yes, that will definitely be a message for COP. Um, it's one of, the, one of the things that could be done to take us from declaring an emergency in words and on paper and actually behaving like you have one. I mean, there must be a military equivalent when you, when you declare any kind of military scenario, you turn a, a threat into, into an action and there, there must be an equivalent um, that we need to now do for the environment if you're going to turn a declaring war on climate change we need to have the, the better better processes i suppose that that also relies on people taking the climate emergency seriously as an emergency and you wonder sometimes whether um, you know this government particularly really does kind of get that this is an emergency i mean lots and lots of people at different levels see it as an emergency you know people are being affected directly i guess and you you must be seeing people who are being directly affected as well as people who are seeing it as a real opportunity to do something positive but you know, it, for, for yeah. an emergency to something to kick in under emergency measures, it has to be viscerally felt as, a, as an emergency. And I just wonder yeah. sometimes whether we really quite get it. And there's the yeah, there is the saying of um, nobody will believe the sky is falling until a piece of it falls on your head. 
but unfortunately, more and more people are seeing the little bit of sky falling, the realities of it. There's you know, your extreme floodings in London, the uh, recent uh, flooding in, in Germany. Uh, there's, there's enough of that going on that I have found the general feeling on the street. So Blackpool, what do I call them? Passersby on the streets of Blackpool who were tourists from around the country. Um, there was a bit of a variety of understanding of quite what they as individuals could do for climate change, but pretty much the, underneath everything, the, the word was just get on and do it. If it is real, if there really is an emergency, just go on and do it. And nearly everybody's saying they're happy to accept change as long as everybody's doing it. So that's a definite thing. There wants to be a kind of level playing field, but there's very few that have said, in fact, I would say so far, nobody who has said, we don't believe that the the climate that the climate is changing. There's different levels of how urgent they feel it is, but the underlying message is if it is real, government should be treating it like it's real. Some have said, well, if it was real, we wouldn't be building nuclear power stations right by the seaside, which I thought was an interesting uh, an interesting concept. Um, mm. Sea level rises are surely going to threaten those. So there's a few people with kind of very practical answers to it, but but overall, the feeling I'm getting is that yeah. Everyday people are happy to accept change, but they feel that the government should be stepping up and making it. Yeah, that's good to hear because, I mean, you know, goes back to my point about echo chambers, because I do worry that sometimes I only talk to people who think the way I think. So it's good to know that. And, and I try very hard not to do that. I try very hard to talk to everybody about this, but but I do worry that sometimes we only do that. But But you've just proved that, that, you know, you can stop a group of random strangers in the street and ask them and they will say, Yes, we can see it's happening and we do need to do something about it. Do you think yeah. we've gone through a bit of a shift in the last few months? Because my sense is that actually all of the things you just mentioned, the flooding here, the flooding in Germany, the, the appalling um, wildfires that we're seeing across the world and intense heat in, in North America and things like that. Suddenly everything seems to have just shifted up a gear and got yeah. even more urgent, if it's possible to say that. Yeah, I would definitely agree that there were so. Everybody had had some example of how they thought the things they thought had changed that were due to climate change. There were less that had any understanding of whether the, there was a biodiversity crisis. There seem to be a lot of people that are quite disconnected from from that. But mm. I definitely feel that there, there's a shift. I mean, there's too many heat waves, etc. Now for people to to not be seeing that. Yeah, definitely. I definitely feel there's been a shift. It's not one that may gives me any joy because you know. It is a sign that we are reaching tipping points faster than science predicted, mm. where a lot of people yeah. a few years ago were saying this, the scientists are giving us, are exaggerating the, the change, are giving us our scaremongering. I mean, I don't know if you ever met a scientist really that scaremongers. Most of them are incredibly um, cautious in the, in the language they use. <laughs> um, but now, um, yeah, now I think, I think people's eyes are open. But are we all willing to shift fast enough? Yeah, I think we will, though, won't we? As you say, I mean, we have no choice, so we have to. So what does it look like from the air? Tell us what the UK looks like from the air at the moment. I mean, are you seeing, you know, this? Uh, has anything stood out for you on some of those flights that you've made already? Because presumably you're only at the beginning of this journey because you've got a long way to go. And if you can only fly for 35 minutes at a time, yeah. <laughs> it's going to take you a hell of a long time, Sasha. It so is. what does it look like? Can you see anything? Does, this, does, does it look any different from the way that you expected it to or the way that it has done in the past? I don't know how much flying you've done in the UK. Oh, I've done I've done quite a lot in the air. I mean, there are places that will have changed since I last flew. So I'm very shortly going to be flying over the managed realignment scheme, the, the wetland creation down at Steert near Bridgewater, where 
I did my first ever proper solo flight with no other no other pilot around to advise at all, um, particularly to get photos of that scheme once it was worth first created. Both the Environment Agency and WWT were being heavily criticised for spending money on, on taking away farmland and turning it into a bog. And I just could explain to people from the air with aerial imagery, you can see that it kind of had the form of a leaf and you could see how bringing the water back in was actually breathing life back into a landscape. And you could see how that could also be helping to manage storm surges, etc. So I'm really excited to be flying over there again. It'll be, what, six or eight years ago, maybe, that I that I last um, flew over there um, to see how that's changed, how that landscape has naturalised and flourished, I hope. So I'm excited about that. It looks, well, different parts of the country are different. One thing I know is different from the air from on the land um, it's a it's a perspective uh, thing where a lot of people imagine that the woodlands and the wild spaces near them are far bigger than they are, particularly because from the ground you might, if you look horizontally across and you see trees, what you might be seeing is a very few thin strips of trees that look like they might be a dense woodland, but from the air you can see it's tiny in the grand scheme of things. So it does look green and lush in a lot of places, but very very little wild I think that that is a that is a perspective that I'd like a lot more people to see Mm. um there are some absolutely spectacular places I suppose we've been flying over areas of the lakes which are you know well loved by many of the general public they've recently been turned into stamps or was that the Peak District but uh speaking to Dr Alex Lees who came and joined us up there to talk about actually whether we can reframe our ideas of what the beautiful lakes or peak district look like to allow more of the wild back in um, and and all the benefits that that would bring so I mean that's quite exciting but then over in in Snowdonia I suppose there's similar problems with um, the clearance of of hillsides but there there were much larger patches certainly from the areas I, I flew of bigger and wilder woodlands that look like actually natural regeneration could happen faster in those places. So I guess there's so many different stories also flying along beaches, the north coast of Wales, where there was so many people packed onto packed onto beaches, um, <laughs> waving, uh, waving enthusiastically. That was also kind of great opportunities to stop and land and, and talk to people. But yeah, uh, and also uh, had a really interesting time stopping at Fairborn, which is the first town in the UK that's been told the residents will have to relocate within 40 to 50 years because we are no longer going to defend it from the rising sea level. So yeah, that's that's a place where they're having to face climate change. They might be the first the first UK climate refugees um, and mm. hearing how they took that. Well, they might be the current, the first UK climate refugees of the current era, but but where ah. I am in Scotland, up in Suffolk, where I've just moved to, you know, on the bit of coast here, we've had coastal erosion for for hundreds of years and a whole whole towns and villages eroded back in the Middle Ages. So Dunwich and parts of Walborough and all of the bit of the countryside that's just close to me. So we know this has yes. been happening my, for, my for, for decades. My grandparents disappeared in the, in, from Dunwich. Yeah, fell off the edge of the cliff. Yeah. 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 You don't have a lot of luck with the homesteads, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Victim uh, of climate change. You are a climate refugee. Uh, so, Sasha, what can people do? I mean, what do you want us to do? What's our call for the pod? What do you want people to do as we think about the run up to COP? And you're going to be doing this for, for many more days, aren't you? Is the idea that you'll, you'll finish a, 
around around well presumably you'll finish before cop because it's november and yeah. hopefully you're not up in november because it'll be jolly chilly up there but but what can people do and what should the call be for action to both support you and also take action around gen- more generally around climate change uh i say don't support me i don't need support the whole point of this is to promote the different stories and hear from people who are um have our have good have great ideas so climatechallenge.live is the website where we're uh, sharing stories through our social media. We're doing Instagram and Facebook lives. That's the Conservation Without Borders, uh, where we're having the, the raw open conversations with different people. So that will be if you want to know what people really said, not the cut down five minutes glossy bit, then go there. And we're asking everybody at the end of it, what could individuals do to help you? What might investors do to help you? So ideally, follow follow those. And if there's anywhere that you think your skills or your funds or your support might be useful, then um, yeah, give them whatever whatever backing you can. That's for me the the main call to action. If there are people who are looking to uh, at their own lives and trying to see what they can do, I think Countersin is a is a great platform for that. They, breaks down what you can do in your daily life into 16 different actions most there's something you can do in most of those and um i've just found it a really i think there's not really anything in there that i didn't know but i found it a really useful tool for um prompting myself on a daily basis can i actually do the vegan version of this yep i probably can so let me try that for example so uh yeah i think count us in if you're wanting to look at what you can do as an individual otherwise follow some of these stories and then Ideally, locally, look out for people around you who've got a great idea because it's those um, who are likely to need more and more um, support and support from people of different skills. You don't have to be an environmentalist to um, make a big make a big impact. And I guess people should look out for you as well, Sasha, as you as you fly by. Is there is there a way of people knowing what your route uh, what route's going to be yeah, or so your continuing route's going to be? It's broadly a coastal route that is, um, it's outlined on climatechallenge.live. And at the bottom of the main page, there's a place where you can nominate uh, individuals or companies that have a great idea. That's a story we might be able to stop in and cover. Um, And we're also having campsite sessions at a few different places. So if you just want to come down and say hello, um, that's also good and, and motivating to have enthusiastic people join us in camp. Um, and if you are a farmer who's got a big field with a toilet shower and access to power, then um, our team who are all camping are, uh, are always on the lookout. We have all of those. Come and see us in Suffolk. You'd be hugely welcome. I would also say that, you know, if you come across any stories that you think we could cover on the pod or we could support, we would love to hear from those Absolutely. because, yeah. you know, that's what we're always looking for. And, you know, just thinking about your seaweed, your kelp farmer. I mean, we did interview the guy who set up the, the who's an entrepreneur who's providing takeaway boxes that are being lined with seaweed now. So when they, you know, instead of being lined with plastic, so, and he's supplying into some of those big fast food chains now. So, so there's lots of connections, but we would love to hear the stories because, because I know our listeners are really interested in them and we're fascinated by them. So so right. you know, point them in our direction. They definitely, absolutely. I'll, I'll share them all. There's quite a few that we can't do justice to, and you could in a longer conversation. Um, and many that I just can't get to because they're too far off route or in too too challenging a a place to fly. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's an excellent idea. Thank you. Yeah.
Well, Sasha, we will look out for you. Um, all of us will look out for you as you fly overhead. Thank you so much for taking time out. I know how busy your schedule is and we really, really appreciate it. And you remain, as always, an immense inspiration to all of us. So we're hugely grateful to you absolutely, um, for joining us can, today, can, aren't we, Jim? Yes, can we, we are. Can, can we find room, sorry, for a short plug for the Joanna Lomley documentary to say that it will play during COP? I'm so sorry to have just said that, but um, absolutely. That, that she's making a documentary called Joanna Lomley and the Human Swan. And um, if you want to know the kind of behind the scenes of that and this journey, that's the place to see it. Sounds like that's a, um, a must-watch documentary. Fantastic. A must-watch documentary. I'm allowed to say two beautiful blondes on the same screen. Jim wouldn't be because that wouldn't be PC. No, but I wouldn't say that. I am, so that was a definite must-watch. <laughs> I'd agree <laughs> with it, but I wouldn't Sasha say it. so much, and we look out for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and we'll we'll look forward to seeing you at COP because Pop will be at COP. So, but we hope to see you before. So, thank you so much. And. This is our last podcast um, for a little while. We're going off air over the summer. So we just say to listeners, look out for Sasha, join Count Us In, do what you can, keep listening to the pod. Uh, we'll be back in September. And wherever you travel this summer, please leave only footprints and travel lightly. And you go with our blessing and love. So goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> Excellent. Goodbye, I don't know everybody. if I'm still live on that. Thanks. Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod, or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.